We Are You comes from Village Soup and the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. Do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. Do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. I know a song that would be perfect right now on WERU. I'd love to put a playlist together for the radio station. If you thought this, then you may need to unleash your inner DJ, which you can do by taking free training at WERU. It all starts with new volunteer orientation, an informative session that takes place on the third Thursday of most months at 6 p.m., right here at our studios in East Orland. By taking the class, you become eligible for DJ training, which could potentially lead you to hosting a radio show. Currently, we are looking for a new volunteer DJ for the Monday edition of Morning Maine. If you are an early riser and a fan of our morning shows, perhaps this could be the place for you. So don't miss new volunteer orientation on the third Thursday of most months at 6 p.m. Reservations are required, so please call 469-6600 or email info at weru.org to get started. Learn all about the possibilities of volunteering at WERU, both on the air and behind the scenes. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. WERU is 89.9 in Blue Hill and Bangor, and also 99.9 in Bangor. WERU.org. We are listener-supported, volunteer-powered, and a voice of many voices. What's happening on Saturday, you ask? WERU's homegrown reggae concert and dance party Saturday, July 28th, 4.20 to midnight. Blue Goose Dance Hall Route 1 in Northport, featuring three top main reggae bands. Catch a Vibe, Merther, Gorilla Finger Dub Band. Advanced tickets $15 at WERU.org. Online sales end yesterday. Volunteers needed help with setup, ongoing cleanup, etc. Contact Susan at info at WERU.org to learn more. Let's talk animals. Good morning. This is Dr. Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We are broadcasting live again uh, this Thursday. We're here every fourth Thursday at 10 a.m., 10 to 11, and I bring in different guests and different topics. Uh, but uh, jot down your phone number if you haven't memorized it by now, 469-0500, 469-0500. If you want to call in and, and uh, become part of our discussion, I enjoy uh, my listeners calling in and adding their thoughts and asking questions. Uh, I do want to plug my Sunday uh, pet sound show at 7.30 in the morning, uh, about two or three minute little clip. Uh, upcoming topics including titers and vaccinations, uh, quality sleep in dogs, some children's questions. I try to pick uh, interesting things for my Sunday morning uh, listeners. So s- Sunday morning, 7.30 been doing that almost eight years. So today, our topic is women in veterinary medicine. And today I have an old, uh, you're not old, but I have a friend <laughs> that, that uh, we've known each other for many years uh, professionally, uh, Dr. Yvette LaHaye. Good morning, Yvette. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me today. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, Yvette is uh, Dr. LaHaye. I'll call you, we'll say Yvette since it's informal. Runs, owns and runs the Searsport Veterinary Hospital, my next-door neighbor professionally. Uh, she, she bought the practice from Dr. Um, Andrews. Andrews, yeah, I forgot. many years ago. And she's been there many years, and she'll give us, fill us in on your professional uh, activities down there. So she's, uh, Dr. LaHaye uh, is here to share her personal experience as a woman in veterinary medicine. And I must add, this is a personal it doesn't necessarily, um, she doesn't speak for everybody. We all have our own personal experiences in, in anything. So I just want my listeners to understand that. And first, uh, I'd like to ask exactly how you got into veterinary medicine. And all the questions are going to be based on, was being a woman a factor? And, um, you know, and how was it if, if it was or wasn't? 
So good morning. Good morning. Uh, so becoming interested in veterinary medicine, I, I must say I did not take the direct route by any means. Um, I graduated college the first time around with a bachelor's degree in communications, specifically in graphic design, and uh, worked in the industry for a couple of years, but sort of knew early on that it was not going to be my life calling. So at that point, I realized that I needed to make a change, do something different. I still really had no idea what I was going to do. So I quit my job, moved to another state, and waitressed and figured that would be good transition. A transition, a good time to reflect. Uh, I had grown up on um, kind of a gentleman's farm. My my dad raised beef cows. We had cats. We had dogs. I always had a horse. And where was this? In Jackson, Maine. Jackson, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I took my little time for reflection, I had to try to figure out why I didn't find my current career as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. And I, I came to the realization that it was great. I loved the artsy side of my brain, but I felt I was very much underusing the not-so-artsy side, my scientific math side. And I really missed that. I, I loved math and science in high school, and I don't know why I didn't go into a career with that from the beginning. But I, I think at the time, um, because my dad was also a biology teacher, it might have been some small amount of rebellion. Yes, I'm not going to do what my dad. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. It kind of does, yeah. So uh, at that point, I I realized that I wanted to do something that was using that part of my my brain again. And then I also took the time to think about what else was missing in my life that um, I think would make me happier. And that was the animals. Uh, At that point in my life, like many young adults, uh, I lived in a situation where I couldn't really have pets and I couldn't have my horse or anything. So how do I get animals back in my life? Um, and that sort of made sense to put those two things together. And I came up with veterinary medicine. The next step was to get back into school, uh, going into communications and graphic design. The hardest college courses I had taken were uh, an intro course in calculus and a little three-credit course in meteorology. So no biology? No biology, no, no chemistry. chemistry, no hard or so math. you got a four-year degree? Yes. So you had a bachelor's. So how many years did you have to go back to school before you could apply to vet school? A full two years, and that was taking classes during the summer as well. Yeah. And that was where? UMaine? Or? University of New Hampshire. Oh, UNH. Yep. Oh, my daughter yes. got her master's there. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, nice it's a great school. It's a nice um, school. Yeah. And, and so it was a very intense couple of years, all the sciences, including everything ranging from organic chemistry to biology and, and uh, microbiology and genetics. And, and you were loving it. I was. It was hard, but I really loved it. And at the same time, I um, did get a job working as a veterinary technician in a local hospital, which was a great introduction as well. So as, as you're going to school at UNH... Uh, you must have been with other students who were interested in veterinary medicine because that's probably a lot of pre-vet science there courses. were, but surprisingly only a handful. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say that my advisor, when I started this, this road, uh, actually discouraged me from pursuing it, saying that he would be concerned of the debt load that I would end up with uh, at the end because... My parents really didn't have the money to fund the education, and so it had to all come from me. And the idea of could I do that in um, a reasonable a reasonable amount of time and not have so much money owed at the end that I could never repay it. Was the debt load back then, was that in the 90s? Yes, I graduated in 97 from okay. vet school. Okay, so it was starting to get expensive. Yes. Because when I graduated in 82, my debt load is $20,000. Yeah. That's just for vet school. Yeah. And but still, that's I was only making nineteen thousand when I got out of school, so mm-hmm. it's but it's disproportionate. The amount of debt that you guys are accruing, right. the salaries haven't all men and women. The salaries still didn't go up with it. Right. And that's a real problem. Right. And so that's just been very slowly. The the difference has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you don't feel uh, at this stage of your career that being a woman, woman, your counselor, it wasn't being a woman that was 
uh, his uh, warning, it was the debt load. It was the debt load. Because earlier, a lot of vet schools were keeping women out because they felt uh, that they're taking places that men could have because they felt that once a woman got out of school, they're going to quit. That was their, that was their, it was, it's wrong, but that's what it was. Right. So I think I was fortunate and I was right on the cusp of when the veterinary classes in, in vet school were just turning from majority men to becoming majority women. Well, my, you, my class was about half and half, maybe a little bit over. Yeah, mine was 60, 70, 30, 70, 40, and 82. Uh, I think probably affirmative action may have played a role. Absolutely. In uh, getting the, the universities kind of shake them up a little bit and tell them, hey, look, come on. <laughs> this is, so that was, so you're in school after the affirmative action was in the 80s? Uh, that I'm not sure. But that was a major mover. So you, you had that advantage. Right. Um, and during your classes, undergraduate classes, there was no issue. Uh, being a female pre-vet wasn't a big deal at that point. No, in fact, I, I can think of three or four classmates, and we were half and half at that point. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, I never felt like that was an issue. And, and maybe because I was rather naive and just didn't think about it. Well, it, it could be, but also I think if it hit you in the face, you would have seen it. Yes. Uh, the real uh, rude or... I would think, yes. Abusive or whatever. So then you decide to apply to vet school. I applied to vet school, which all on its own was quite a challenge. Uh, <laughs> you know, trying to do this on a shoestring budget, um, working and then going to these... Uh, not so easy classes full time, and so at that point, going applying for vet school was tricky in that each individual school had its own criteria for applying, and so some schools would require a genetics class, other schools did not. Some required two semesters of organic chemistry, some did not. Michigan State, I had to have a poultry class, exactly, and a beef uh, a beef class. I had to know the cuts of the beef. So that meant, and you probably did the same thing, sitting down with your course books, all of the books for the various vet schools, and basically making these enormous charts as to what schools could you end up applying for in the amount of time that you had left to finish your undergraduate work. But but this isn't necessarily going to women in veterinary medicine. This is kind of a general education about people applying to vet school. Mm -hmm. In my day... Uh, there are only 17 schools. And if you weren't in the state that the school had, you then could only apply to certain certain states. Or certain the states only had a certain amount of openings right. for states. Like Maine had two openings. Michigan State had two openings in Maine, things mm-hmm. like that. So same thing. And so basically like that, the states that don't have veterinary schools have what they call seats right. reserved at other schools. And so at the, at that point, I was a resident of New Hampshire. And the year that I was applying for vet school, they dropped from three seats reserved to one. Which vet school? Uh, they were, I believe that was at Tufts. Okay. So I had one chance to get into Tufts. Whew. Right. Um, and then the only other option is to look at what other vet schools would accept out-of-state uh, applicants. So Tufts was the only one that had a seat for New Hampshire people. Correct. Correct. Okay, I think that got a little more strict than when we... Right. When I, I had it. With me, I was in New York, mm-hmm. New York resident, and you couldn't apply to any other vet school. Oh. You had to apply... I had to apply to Cornell. Yes. I didn't have any option. Wow. Well, the option was I moved. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was living out in Michigan anyway. Mm-hmm. So I became a Michigan resident because that's where I wanted to be. Right. So the, all these silly... Silly little rules because it all a lot of the vet schools were land grant schools, mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. so they all protected their little correct fiefdom, right. and that's kind of how it's 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 been. It's more of a state thing, right? And and just to let the listeners know, we have to have we have to be licensed state to state, not national. We don't have a national license. We have a national test. A national test, but to get a license, you have to take whatever the state test. Each state has its own correct silly. So I shouldn't say silly, but. Back to the original topic of yes. applying for vet school, yes. it's this crazy, 
crazy thing of setting up all these charts. And, and I did find a number of schools that would take out-of-state applicants. Um, and so narrowing it down, I think I narrowed it down to five. And each college required a different application process, either different letters, different essays, all of your transcripts, test scores, and an application fee. Uh, and so I, I believe I applied to five. I received interviews with three of them. And so interviews require you go in person and meet these people. So that was more expense, travel time, etc. cetera. And, uh, and of those three, I actually got accepted at all three. So I was very lucky and actually had a choice, uh, and I will be very honest and say that um, price did certainly uh, play a big part in it, yeah. although the school that I chose to go to, which ended up being the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, I just really liked the school and felt very comfortable there. Oh, good, good. The openings had nothing to do with women or men. Just, I don't believe so. It's just, And you didn't feel there was any, during your application process, any... Uh, prejudice or in favor of you or not? Not in favor of me, no. One of the schools that I applied to and, and was interviewed at, I definitely felt like it was very, for better words, stodgy with a lot of old school. I think it was all men on the interview board. Um, a little intimidating? To me, it was very intimidating. Yeah. And even though I was accepted there, it was a place that I was not interested in going. What were they like in the interview? Um, they were very nice. It just didn't, it just was. It just wasn't, you know. Wasn't want, diverse. It wasn't diverse and it, I didn't feel welcomed and warm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's your gut feeling. Absolutely. But Tennessee seemed. Very much so. The uh, associate dean at the time was amazing and met you at the door shaking your hand. He knew who you were based on a photo you had sent in six months ago. Um and he was he was amazing, and that sold me right there. Wow. So for all you young people out there, um, it may be a long road, but it's doable. It is doable. It is doable. Um, I think for people that have to pay out of pocket, you have to take a lot of into consideration. And I think when you're at whatever age, 18, or in my case at that point, 22 or 23, the idea of having a hundred and whatever thousand dollars in debt when you graduate it it's not even you can't wrap your head around that and so I kind of went in not really knowing mm -hmm. um, what that meant well in hindsight would you recommend applicants to try to wrap wrap their head around it before they commit I think to some extent but I'd also don't want people to be so discouraged that they don't yeah. try um, I'm certainly hopeful that this will get better. Uh, there are some ways of trying to get around it now. Uh, there are opportunities of practicing in underserved areas that will allow you to have some loan forgiveness opportunities. And so there are, are some ways to help. Good, good. So you got into school at the University of Tennessee. University of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said about 50-50? Of the class? If I remember correctly. I, more or less. More important to me was the fact that um, three-quarters of the class were non-traditional students, which means they did not go right through four years of undergrad right into vet school. Right. And I think that was one of the reasons I was accepted. At that point in time, they were looking to diversify their groups. Mm -hmm. And I think um, being a woman but also just being a non-traditional student helped with that. A little older, more mature. Right. And I think about a third of the class was out of state. Oh, really? Students. That's a yes. lot. And it was a land-grant college, so it was a lot. And they yeah. kind of clamped down on that shortly after my class. How many were in your class? hundred? Uh, no, we were a small class, about 60. Oh, wow. Which okay. was another reason I chose that school. Yeah. So during your uh, schooling, um, you had women professors? I, yes, I certainly did. And you had women fellow students and mm -hmm. going through the, was it a four-year program? Yes. And how did that, um, how was that experience in terms of, of being a woman? So it was a great experience. Uh, I, at the time, was more interested in large animal type medicine. And so the majority of the professors in that part of the program were men, uh, which I'm fine with. I actually really enjoy talking with men and, and working with them. Um they were 
probably a greater percentage of male professors overall, although plenty of women uh, were involved, and both as your professors, but also the interns and the residents as well. So I think that there was, um, I never felt like I was entering a men's world. Especially in large, even large animal now, Mm -hmm. I read something about 82% of the large animal vets are still men. Right. So women haven't gotten into that. Right. Yeah, but I think with... this is going to be a little bit of a problem in the future for veterinary medicine, too. In what way? Um, I think fewer women are becoming large animal vets, and as the number of men in the profession decline, are we going to be able to get enough large animal vets to sustain the needs out there? And why aren't women moving into that part of the medicine? Um, I think there's two reasons. I mean, one would obviously be the physical part of it. Uh, but as chemical restraint has become more commonplace and easier, I think that that's not so hard anymore. Uh, I think the other part is the hours. As women, we want to have the option of someday having a family. And I think it's more difficult as a large animal vet because you usually don't have the emergency on-call um, availability to trade with other vets. And right. so when you're a large animal vet, you're pretty much on call all the time, and that's hard to do when you've got little babies. Or even if you're in larger practice out in larger Wisconsin, practices, four right. or five, you're still, even with four or five, you're still on once a week. or mm-hmm. And every so many weekends. Weekends, yeah. Correct. And when you're on, large you're animal, on. you're on. I mean, you're... Yeah, they don't care if it's one in the morning or if it's... Right, milk you know, fever, down cow, prolapse uterus... Right. Colic. I mean, happens all happens hours anytime. of the day. Yeah. And with small animal, we have so many emergency clinics available now right. uh, that it kind of takes that whole emergency on-call part of this away. So you feel the it's it's the nature of the nature of the business of large animal. Yes. Is is not um, conducive to what women are looking for to fit to balance their private life, which is a big issue of balancing Absolutely. private life. And that's a balance for everybody, men and women. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, men were the quote-unquote breadwinners, right. so they're supposed to go out and do the milk fever and stuff, and right. the women would be home. But now we don't. We have a different situation. Right. So the small animal you're feeling balances... I think you're more balance. likely to find a balance. Yeah. Yes. I think large animal... You're less likely to be able to work a part-time job. Um, around here, there aren't any large animal emergency clinics. There aren't, there's hardly any large animal clinics with multiple practitioners. And so the idea of trading days or, or nights on call is even less so. Yeah. We're here with Dr. Yvette LaHaye from Searsport, a veterinary hospital owner. And we're talking about women in veterinary medicine. This is WERU 89.9. And the phone number is 469-0500. If you'd like to call to ask a question, ask a vet a question or make a comment, um, 469-0500. And we'll continue our um, talk. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Today we're in the V section of the alphabet, veterinarians. So we're talking a little bit about the uh, the balance of of this profession and how it was very much um, men oriented, and now it's really shifted. Matter of fact, when I look at the journals and see the ads for you know for open job openings, the new things I've seen since I retired is four day weeks. Mm-hmm. That's that's becoming huge now. Yes. Now, when yep. you were out, it was six day weeks mm-hmm. that we were working, right? And maybe seven days, <laughs> right? So that so that really has changed. You feel the women being in veterinary medicine has kind of shifted that change. Do you think that's the? Yeah, I think it's hard to say which came first, the chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe. The fact that there's more women in the industry, it's probably helped driving it that way. Mm-hmm. But I think men were probably getting tired of living that way as well. Yes. And again, as the advent of, of emergency clinics have come, I think that it's all of that has combined to help make that shift. And so I think you can definitely achieve a better balance. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The younger men and us older 
guys too. That's why we, we set up that emergency clinic in Bangor because right. all the veterinarians, men and women, were sick of, of just seven days a week. Right. It just was not good. We do have a, a, a caller, uh, Michelle. I think it's my wife, Michelle. Is this my wife? Hi, husband. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Dr. LaHaye. Hi, good morning. Good morning. I have a general question for both of you. If you can speak to the youngsters who might be thinking about veterinary medicine, talk to them about the kind of classes that they might want to take in high school and in college to help them to be a very good veterinarian, aside from the sciences. Thank you. Okay. Very relevant. What, what would you tell a uh, high school? Because you get that, we get that question all the time. Right, we do get it a lot. Um, I think uh, making sure that you get your plenty of science and math, because those are so important getting into this industry and making sure that you're comfortable with it and um, that you enjoy that. Because really veterinary medicine isn't just about petting the fuzzy little puppies and kittens. Uh, you really need to have a good brain for that sort of thing. Technical stuff, especially with the new equipment. Absolutely. Um, I think maybe rather than just concentrating on the school subjects that you take, I think personal life experience is as important Oh, like for, for instance? Working opportunities. I mean, I milked cows when I was in high school, and mm -hmm. I think that was a, a great um, lead-up to having interest in this. Very good. You know, possibly working in a dog kennel or even sh shadowing at a veterinary hospital. Or even a dog walking service. Absolutely. So, yeah. so personal experience, getting – I think this is a good point you made, getting comfortable – with math and science, mm -hmm. not just take it, but getting comfortable with it. Right. And that's something I haven't thought of. And know that you enjoy it. Yeah. The thing, the additional thing that I always tell my kids that ask me these questions is learn how to read and write and communicate. If you good can't point. communicate, then you're not going to be a good veterinarian. Correct. Because you have to talk, you have to be able to talk to your client. Right. And if you can't write and read well and mm -hmm. write well, you won't be able to communicate. So I always, they always look at me, their eyes went up. So yeah, take your math and science, but also don't neglect your English. Correct. Um, and that's and, and public speaking. And I never thought about that because my degree was in communication. Yeah, so that was your, that right. was your, your deal. Right. So that's, that's a good combination. So all you, you young listeners out there is English, learn how to read and write and speak and your math and science so that you're comfortable with it and personal experience. Right. Just go out there and do anything. Anything. Anything associated Even with animals. A, yeah, anything. A wildlife uh, rehab center, cleaning mm -hmm. cages. I think I think both the vet and I all, we we started from the bottom too, uh, cleaning cages. And, mm -hmm. um, I worked two or three different vet hospitals at one time, mm -hmm. just cleaning cages. So uh, that's all good stuff. Absolutely, yes. So uh, during school, there wasn't really an issue with, at that point. I never felt it. That's uh, good. But I think I was always a person that didn't really look for problems like Did you ever observe issues. it with other people? Others? Did you ever have fellow students kind of come to you and say, God, you know, like that, blah, I, blah, blah, did blah, blah, blah. I really didn't. Um, that's, that's, a, that's very good. Yeah. I, I think UT did a great job of not making anybody feel like they didn't belong there. So once you once you get out of school, mm -hmm. uh, now you have to start looking for jobs. Right. Does that did that kind of open your eyes a little bit? Um, a little bit. I had always assumed that I would come back to Maine, and so I had already narrowed down where I was going to be looking. And at that point, I had a, a boyfriend in the area, and so I knew I wanted to come back to this mid coast area. So I did apply for a few different jobs. I actually got two job offers. Um, and small animal or mixed? Or? Um, one was small animal only, and the other one was mixed, and I took the mixed animal job because I had some interest in that area. Uh, and I don't think at any point did I feel like I didn't get a job because I was female. I, I felt like it was more to do with my experience and, and my own confidence level. So the, with the mixed animal during the interview, you didn't get a question, do you think you can handle this kind of no, thing? No. Good. Not at all. Very good. And you practiced with in, at the what part of Maine was that? That was in Ellsworth. Oh, with uh, with um, Dr. Roush. Dr. Roush. Oh, mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> yep. A couple of years there, uh -huh. 
Uh, and, you know, it was a great experience. I think coming fresh out of vet school, I was not confident enough to go right out and start my own practice. Um, some people are. I was not one of them. I needed some guidance. Yeah. And so that was a good stepping stone. And, you know, in retrospect, maybe I would have been offered more money had I been a man. And I think that even as a employer now, I would even be guilty of that to some extent because I still think men are often the breadwinner. And I know that that's not right mm-hmm. in, in my family. Um, it, we're 50-50, but uh, I think it's still such an ingrained thing in our brain that um, maybe even subconsciously we sometimes do that. And that is one of the primary uh, problems is that the salaries, there's a Correct. discrepancy. So even you as a woman in this profession, mm-hmm. it's, it's so, like you say, it's so ingrained mm-hmm. that do you think um, fundamentally it's unfair to pay women less. Right. But if a man gets paid more, you're not objecting to it as much. I guess I object to it, but I actually don't really think that much about it. I, and, and this is some of the things that I've read is in part because women tend to look more subjectively at the at their jobs and right. what drives them to want that job mm-hmm. as opposed to men who apparently think more objectively. Um, and so women are looking at things like their relationships with their employees and their um, clients, uh, looking at their satisfaction at the end of the day um, as opposed to men who are thinking more along the lines of what is my salary going to be uh, I got a boat payment I shouldn't say that house payment kids in college right right so when so because that's the way you think um, then salary is like fourth or fifth so it's not and I don't want to I mean that's a generalization that was some of the information that I read but then as I was reading it I was going back and thinking at the end of the day, at the end of my work day, what do I, what do I look at as a successful day or as a good day? Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with the money. For me, it has to do with how I did with my patients that day. Did I make a client happy that day? Um, and so I guess, I guess I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. Hmm. And, and we were going before we got on air, we talked about leadership. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes to how you approach your profession. I'm just going to go over these and see if that clicks in, because I, I can see this. Men tend to be the strong, determined, ruthless, assertive leader. You know, they're just right in there, and Boston people are bossy. Mm-hmm. And women are helpful, kind, soft-spoken, and sensitive. And, in general. And you've seen that, more or less. But when you own your own practice and you have a staff, mm-hmm. um, do you, I found as a boss you kind of had to be both. Right. I think a good boss is both. Yes. If you're not, then you run into trouble. Right. Either financially or keeping employees. Right. And uh, have you seen yourself as a a boss? And and most of your employees are women. Mm -hmm. So you're, um, have you felt you had to do a little bit of the man perspective? I hate to divide it, men and women, but more assertive Mm -hmm. than you would, than you'd normally be. Be well, someone not quite how you are as a person, but you need to be that way in order right, to run the business. Right, and so that's a little hard. I I sometimes have a hard time taking that firm line on something. Right. Um, you know, I tend to be more like just just waiting it out to see if it will correct itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes you have to step in and, and be harder about it, and I do struggle with that some. Yeah. So you have to kind of put your yourself aside for a second to right and be a boss and be a boss that's hard for everybody but i was just wondering if that as a woman boss over women mm-hmm. is that have you been a boss over men i have i've had some male employees um associate well not associate vets uh relief vets uh as well as a couple of male technicians and um i guess i didn't have any harder time working with them and being a boss for them than I did anybody else. I do feel like maybe I took a little bit different approach, perhaps. Oh, what, what kind of different approach? Um, 
I'm not saying you favor them, but you... No, I didn't favor them at all. But you, you manage them differently a little bit? Maybe. I, I'm i not really sure. I, yeah. Looking back on it, I, I probably did. Um, I think I was probably a little less soft-hearted about some things um, because I think that they looked at the job not so softly. You know, right. To them, More it was concrete. a paycheck and... Uh, and interestingly, one of them was much more into repairing things and um, fixing, fixing things. things. Yes, that's what guys like to yes. do. Yes. You like to fix things. Right. And so <laughs> looking at them as that was their contribution as opposed to being the super nice, um, soft-hearted technician. Huh. Okay. Uh, and so you know, making sure that everybody who was working at the time saw that there was a benefit of having that kind of employee. And how did they, how did the men treat you in terms of respect and as your boss? I thought they were fine. Did they, did they challenge you more? I didn't, I didn't feel like that. Okay. In the end, I still signed their paycheck. And would you find it, I don't know if you had to do this, would you find it higher, to, harder to fire a male employee or a female employee? Hmm. That's a tough question. Um, I think I have a hard time with the females if I have to fire somebody just because I don't like the emotional part that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not good at confrontation, and I, I don't like all the emotion. Um, whereas, interestingly, with the men, I thought about they're going to be so devastated financially. How can I do this? Mm. Okay, so we're still trapped in the... I, I apparently am. Uh, I wouldn't call it trapped. It- but but there's a kind of a reality to it though. Yeah, it kind of there is, and I, mean, I, I really I don't go home thinking about these sorts right. of things. But looking back on it, that's probably the way I was feeling. It did it, it did come into your calculations. I'm sure it did somehow. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how it cannot. Um, you know, I'm not quite of the new generation where none of this matters, and I didn't grow up with two parents that were equally educated and working equal jobs. Right. And so there was still that old-fashioned breadwinner situation. So with the millennials mm-hmm. as employees, do you see a different attitude with sexes in a, in a profession? Or having a woman boss? Because uh, they look at life a little bit differently. Right. So I don't have a lot of... I have a couple of younger people working for me, and they're women. And so I don't know that I have a male's perspective on like the younger generation these days. I don't, I don't think I have anybody to really mm. compare to yet. My, my own son's only 13, and so I don't, I don't know yet. Right. Um, the young ladies that I have working for me, I, I think, seem um, very confident and bold enough that they can go out there and conquer whatever they want to. Um, Are they I, independent? In, in, in their job? In other words, they're not dependent on you all the time? Because that's another boundary mm-hmm. uh, thing is, your, is the, mm-hmm. the staff boundaries. I think that that's a hit or miss. I mean, I've certainly had some younger employees that were not so um, driven and uh, confident enough to do things without being led by the hand all the time. Right, always um, asking you. Right, but now I, I have a, a couple... That one in particular, I, I feel like she's totally confident and can do anything I threw at her. So that, that you don't think that's a function of sex then? Probably. Just I think experience. less so than it used to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do they? Are they? The lady employees? Are they? Um, do they want to work all the time, or do they want more time off? Do they want higher pay? Do they want um, lesser hours? Do they. I think everybody wants higher pay. I don't think you can really uh, get around that. Um, and well, the women, as as, uh, as you as you said, women salaries weren't number one on the list. But how about for your employees? So I think veterinary medicine in general is not a really high paying industry, and so technicians per se are not going to make what a nurse, like a human nurse, is going to make. And so I think that. Money will always be somewhat of an issue um, because they're not going to get rich doing this job. Right. And so I think that's that's always a concern. But they don't complain about it. And I think I pay fairly and as well as most any other practices around. Yeah. And so it's not like they can just go down the road and get a better job. Right, right. Um, so they're I, doing it for the job. 
Right. And I already have my employees working four work days, four week, four day work okay. days. Um, we work long days. And so they're still getting on average 38 hours a week. Right. And so they're still putting in plenty of time, but because of the way the days are set up, it's just easier to work the four days. Uh, and so they don't complain about that at all. We'll talk about schedule in a second, but mm-hmm. we do have a caller, Stephen from Bangor, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. What can we help? How can we help you? You have a question? Yep. Two questions. Okay. One is uh, what the role of technology is coming into veterinarian practice. Uh, it's probably moving as fast as it is in human uh, medicine. And the second question is, um, and it's one I know that Dr. Hunt had to learn on the fly, was um, how do you train for running a business? Uh, because that doesn't seem to be in any of the <laughs> curriculum. And it could be a real killer if you don't get you know, some training in that, you know, even basics. And those are my two questions. Very good questions um, and relevant to, to both of us in right. our careers. Uh, speak to technology. I've been retired for a couple of years, so but lots of stuff is happening. Lots of stuff is happening, and you're right. It's we lag a little bit behind the human medicine, but not that far. And so we do have an awful lot of technology and doing things. You know, having records online so that you can send them to other clinics easier. Um, in fact, I, my my practice we just bought uh, a new digital x-ray machine which was a huge step it's very cool (laughs) very cool but a huge step um for me personally but also for the practice and it's amazing uh, but there's definitely a learning curve the nice thing is that we have a very young workforce coming up with all of this ability to use the technology and so i rely pretty heavily on these guys to help me um, get through all this it's it's certainly a learning curve. The problem with technology, even when I was practicing, uh, your digital cost, I'll just say a number, you don't have to confirm it or not, like $30,000 just to have it, mm-hmm. and you got to pay for it. Right. So now you have to charge a certain amount of money to use it on your clients, but you can't charge too much because... Right. So that comes back to the whole business question, which is another there you go. another thing entirely. Yes. Yes, and, and you're right, Stephen. I did learn on the fly. I think probably Yvette did too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get any. None. And still, they don't have business courses on how to run a business. No. And when you work for somebody, did you have them teach you business? It was almost like a oh, secret. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, it was a secret. Yeah. <laughs> you go into their office, and they're, like, hiding. <laughs> well, I'm not going to show my associate this. Right. Like, secrets. So you're right. It was um, – so how did you how did you learn? Uh, well, I think – First of all, my mom probably taught me very good um, personal business skills, and that was probably the most uh, helpful thing that I learned. And and so she was a bookkeeper, and she could tell me right from the day that I was old enough to earn money how to save some, how to spend it, how to, you know, make choices as to what's important, what's not. Yeah, budget. Yep. yep. And the other thing is is, and this is probably inherent in small business people that are successful is that you understand the concept that you you don't take the money out of the till mm-hmm. just because it's your business. Right. So it's, I think it's not you, your money. You have to manage it. I think either you have to be a good business person anyway. And and I think some people just have a good business brain. Right. Uh, or you have to hire someone to manage it for you. Right. But some people don't have neither. Right. They don't and so they And they're probably going to have some problems. Right. And we have seen veterinarians have problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they could have been more successful, right? Um, and not because they weren't good veterinarians, right? That's the yeah. That's, that's the it. sad part. And that's usually the good veterinarians are the bad business right people because they don't care, mm-hmm. and it's just too bad because that limits their technology, you know, buying mm-hmm. things and, and doing stuff, right? So, those are two very good questions. Uh, thank you, Stephen. I, I do think that maybe. Um, being able to take some of the business courses as undergraduates would be helpful, but you're already trying to get so many classes in such a short time that it's not a great option. Well, the colleges should at least mention it to the. They should, and the and really, people. they should make it as at least an option to be able to take. Bring them. it up. Say, you know, take a bookkeeping, take a, a mm-hmm. business, um, take a public speaking, mm-hmm. something like that, just to. Right. 
Because you do have some electives. Right, I you mean, have not, some. Yeah, not a lot. <laughs> not, a, not a lot, and, and they already yeah. encourage you to take so many other things like nutrition and, and yeah. things like that. Even before you get into school. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah, it's, it's too much. Mm-hmm. So you feel that, um, that you set pretty good boundaries with your staff. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the boss, but yet you were able to be the boss of, in a way that you want to be as, a, as a woman. Yes, I feel like I do a pretty good job with it. And they're pretty independent. They can. Mm-hmm. How about um, client boundaries? Clients want your cell phone. They, right. they demand access to you. And uh, I read that some, um, this is what I read, so mm-hmm. you're going to have to tell me whether this is something. Women find it hard to turn off the phone when they leave the practice. They can't just shut the door. I think that's a problem with men, too. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, I think it, some men, it's more of a problem mm-hmm. than women. So I don't know why they're making the, the article I read about women in veterinary medicine that that's an issue. I was reading that, so well, that's an issue with men too. Right. They just can't leave it alone. What's your personal experience about client boundaries? So my personal experience, um, and this is this is just my way of managing all this uh, because I do have kids and family and whatnot. Uh, I compartmentalize, and so when I'm work, I'm at work. And if my kids call in, you know, I have to deal with whatever they're throwing at me. But at the same time, um, I'm still very much at work. But when I leave, I go home. And with the emergency clinics available um, on the weekends, I'm really at home. And I, I don't take work home with me. I, I don't have any veterinary-related stuff at home. I don't take medications home. I don't have any way of managing uh, an emergency at home, really. And and for that reason, I, I don't want to do it when I'm not at work. Having the emergency clinic helps. Helps a lot. lot. I still do on-call emergencies during the week, uh, but I don't get a lot. And I think um, my clients understand that I don't have these things at my house. And so showing up at my door does them no good whatsoever. And that's probably happened one or two times. It has, um, yeah. or at least people calling me and wanting to right. know if they can just come to my house. And I, I think I set those boundaries very early on, and I'm really glad that I did. Because it's, it's easier and easier to, for clients to get at you. Yes. Whether yeah. it's a cell phone or Facebook mm-hmm. or... Right, and I don't really give my cell phone out very frequently and tell my clients, if I give you this number, you have to burn it immediately afterwards. Uh, or else. Right, right. I don't want to become so phobic at, with my phone that I don't want to ever answer it. Right, right. So that, that was pretty simple then. You... It's fairly simple. And, you know, I do have times where I feel a little guilty if the emergency, um, I use an answering service, and if they happen to call me when I'm not on call and say we have an emergency, it's really hard for me to say, uh, but I'm not on call. Because I always wonder who it is, and is it somebody I should be, you know, addressing? An ongoing case, maybe, or something like that? Yeah, yeah, or just something that that maybe I could help them faster and cheaper than sending them to the emergency clinic. Yeah. I find that the ongoing cases, you send them home, and Mm -hmm. something happens, and Mm -hmm. you kind of feel like you should be responsible. Yeah, oftentimes those folks, I'll take their phone number home with me and call them at some point over the weekend. Yeah, that's what I used to do. Yeah. I can't remember when we were uh, when you first came. Were we sharing emergencies, or did the emergency clinic start? No, we were sharing emergencies. Yeah, yeah we did um, every other. And day actually, and that was when you had another associate in your practice, so we were doing every third right. weekend on call, right. and that was okay. And then it got down to just the two of us. Yeah. And, but then the emergency <laughs> clinic opened up, and you bailed on me totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I just survived too. My mental health was deteriorating. Right, which is exactly what happens when you get overworked and yeah. um, are on call too much. It doesn't matter how much you love your job. It doesn't. But with women, you have your job and then you have family. Right. Um, the, the, the family care that the women woman is responsible for. I'm not saying men don't have that too. Right. But you tend to have more response. seems to be more responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And how's, how... How has that balance been with your home and your husband and your kids? And So it's definitely hard. Um, fortunately, both my husband and I own our own businesses, and so one of the things that we did very early on was to set up our schedule such that one of us was always available to get kids on or off the bus, uh, which I think 
was huge for us. We, I did have to use, utilize daycare early on, which I was not crazy about doing. Uh, that was part of why I instituted having a four-day work week so that I could have a day off in the middle to spend with my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were lucky that we could set up our schedules such that one of us was always available before and after school. Uh, and I think that made a big difference. Um, I think the hard thing as the kids get older is being available for things like making it to their sporting events. I was just going to ask you about, especially now 13, right? getting into junior high, high school. Right. So thank goodness my mom lives nearby. Oh, good. <laughs> she has been um, amazing at helping take kids back and forth and, and being present at any events that one of us cannot be at. Um, and I think that that's been huge. And so my kids understand that we can't always be there for everything. And they play sports because they want to play, not because they need to show off to us. And we'll do everything we can to support them and be there. But sometimes we just can't. And there's also some uh, reversal roles. I know that one of the veterinarians at Bucksport, mm-hmm. uh, Shauna, uh, she has, I think she's almost ready to have her third oh, wow. child. She's quite large, um, I think any day now, mm-hmm. and her husband stays home, mm. and he's a, he's a father, stay-at-home father, mm-hmm. and so that's been more common I think as well. Has, yeah, and, and I believe another veterinarian in my area did basically the same thing, um, and I think that that's certainly an option, and it works for some families very well. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras talking with Dr. LaHaye, Vet LaHaye from Searsport, talking about women in veterinary medicine. We only have about eight or nine more minutes to go, so if you have any calls, uh, any questions, call in at 469-0500. This is WERU 899 in Orland, Maine. So um, continuing along your experience as a practice owner uh, and the fact that women... A number of years ago, you rarely saw a woman buy a practice, and now I think you're seeing more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you think that's because there's more opportunity or women becoming more confident? Well, a number of reasons. There's more women veterinarians, period. And so if... It was your statistics. You had some statistics, I think. Oh, I think right now... <clears throat> it's something along the lines of 55% workforce is women um, and 45% are men uh, as far as veterinarians are concerned and so that was um, 2009 was the first year that female veterinarians outnumbered male and so that shift has been slowly going um, and each year that we graduate a new class that shift is going to become greater and greater and so as we have more women veterinarians and more veterinarians retire then obviously you're going to have if they want to sell their practices they're probably going to have to sell to a woman at some point yeah that's what happened to me i mean that's just math and men are not applying to vet school not applying to vet school and actually one of the the statistics i read said that men in general are fewer of them are graduating even with a bachelor's degree what are they doing I, I don't know. I'm guessing more trade industries. Mm-hmm. And so that right there means that they're not even eligible to apply for vet school. Right. And not that you need a bachelor's, but you have to have basically four years of undergraduate work. Um, and so I think that there's just fewer men in general to apply. I think the uh, we're talking before the show that some of the universities are actually trying to recruit men mm-hmm. to maintain diversity. This kind of the right. diversity thing got too successful, so mm-hmm. to speak. And they're trying to backtrack a little bit. So interesting that I also found that this trend of feminization um, is also expected to include lawyers and human medical doctors. Same for the same reasons. Same reasons. But in veterinary medicine, money is also because we don't we don't get as much money as lawyers don't and, and doctors, no. and that's why men don't want to. They could probably one of the reasons, yeah, do better as an electrician or right. Or whatever, which is great. I yep. mean, that's good. Yep, lower debt load and more immediate money. Yeah, the debt load, that's that's huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another um, statistic about, uh, um, what was I going to say? Uh, the shift 
the feminization. Oh, the um, buying practices. That's what I was going to mm. talk about. There's now, so men owned most of the practice. Now more and more women. But now, and these are the small practices like you. Right. But now there's the corporations coming in. Right. So can you tell our listeners what's going on with the corporations, the VCAs, the right. Banfields? So we don't see that much of that sort of thing here in Maine. And, and a lot of um, people from this state probably don't know very much about that. Uh, but these larger areas, larger cities, um, a lot of the veterinary practices are owned by corporations, like you said. And and this is the same thing as human medicine. Uh, we see an awful lot of that. And, and so veterinary medicine is kind of shifting that same direction. And so corporations own the practices and you are hired as an associate veterinarian. And I think that in some ways that makes it easier for women to be involved and not have to worry about practice ownership. But it also takes a lot of the... Um, the interest away from men wanting to be veterinarians. And I think a lot of men would prefer to own their own businesses. And that may be another reason why they just aren't becoming as interested in the field. And the corporate is, um, you're not as, you're not as independent. You're not as independent. There's usually a lot of regulation as to how you treat certain cases, what you can do, what you ask for, for testing, Absolutely. So there goes your creativity that you have. Right. It's stifled. It is stifled. Uh, and, and it is becoming very, um, very common. There, there is, there is a corporate that has moved into this area, and I bet you're going to probably see it in Bangor in the next couple of years. I know it's down in in Portland, mm-hmm. um, down in in uh, Portsmouth as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have another. Uh, Michelle's back on the phone. Michelle, you have another question. I do. Um, I also was wondering, um, Yvette, is there any prejudice in the exam room because you're a female? <laughs> do the patients and clients tend to take you less seriously? Right. So, Good question. Great question. I think early on when I first took the practice over, I bought from a, another gentleman. And when I first took the practice over, I definitely felt that that was the case. And I think a lot of men would come in being very skeptical as to whether I either knew what I was doing or could do it physically as well. And I, I do feel that that happened early on. But it didn't seem to me like it took very long before that uh, was no longer the case. And I think they just had to get to know me or the fact that women in general could do the job. Uh, and part of that, too, is you're new. And that any time I mean, I, I, got the, I got the hairy eyeball. But I think you had it worse. Right. I think you're a new and, and you're a woman. Right. What are you doing here? You can't. Right. You can't do, you can't handle my Rottweiler. Right. You know. Yeah. Just, so I just had to prove him wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took time. Yes. That, that was an excellent question. And, yeah. And I don't take it as a, as a, um, I don't take it as a bad thing. I take it as a challenge. Oh, good. But now you've been in Searsport. Everyone knows who you are. Right. It's so no longer deal. an issue. We're running low on time. Um, is there anything else you can add um, that would be helpful for our listeners to understand better? Got two minutes. Um, well, let's see. I don't know. We covered most of the subjects that I had brought Good. up. Um, so I think just to encourage all young people, men and women, mm-hmm. to look at this profession. It's a great profession. Yeah, you're not going to be a millionaire. It is a great profession. But it's a great profession. I, I loved every minute of it. I love my job. I feel good at the end of the day. And that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I think that's about it uh, for Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks to Zebras. This is Dr. John Hunt, your host. Thank you, Dr. LaHaye, for coming here. Thank you. And remember, enjoy your pet, and don't forget to give them a hug. Let's take a quick look at the weather. we got some exciting stuff happening outside East Orland here. Showers and possibly a thunderstorm, mainly before 3 p.m., then scattered showers and thunderstorms after 3 p.m. Some of those storms could produce heavy rain. Patchy fog before 3 p.m., high near 76. South winds around 11 miles an hour. 
chance of precipitation is six, is 80%, and new rainfall amounts between a quarter and a half of an inch. Tonight, scattered showers and thunderstorms before 10 p.m., then isolated showers and, uh, let's see, between 10 and 1 a.m., mostly cloudy overnight with a low around 64. Southwest wind, uh, 5 to 8, and chance of precipitation only 30%. Friday is looking a little better, mostly sunny, then chance of thunderstorms, 30% chance of rain in the afternoon, high of 83. And Friday night, chance of thunderstorms, and a chance more chance of rain later on, with a low of 65. Saturday, a chance of showers before noon, then a chance of showers and thunderstorms between noon and 1. Then showers, likely and possibly a thunderstorm after 1 p.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 80. And Sunday looks like our weekend day, mostly sunny with a high of 81. Sunday night, low of 60. So we're looking at a good half of a weekend with the needed rain between now and then. Hosted by fishermen for fishermen, the annual Maine Fisherman's Forum is the place to learn about current issues facing the fishing industry and the coast of Maine. At the 2018 Forum this past winter, Maine Sea Grant, the First Coast, and College of the Atlantic recorded dozens of stories for the voices of the Maine Fisherman's Forum collection. WERU aired some of these stories on Coastal Conversations back in March, but we are ready for more. On the next Coastal Conversations, Friday, July 27, from 10 to 11 a.m., we'll share five more voices of the Maine Fisherman's Forum, including those told by an elver fisherman, a herring purse seiner, a schooner captain, a fisheries advocate, and a